Welcome to the Pathfinders Collective podcast, where we get to have amazing conversations with the scientists, thought leaders and activists that are prepared to tell the truth about the scale of the climate and ecological crises and do something positive about it. As the interviews have progressed, I'm now more of a mind to give more attention to eco-anxiety and a growing feature of future episodes will be to explore ways to be happy, even against a backdrop such as the one we're currently experiencing, to give voice to how our situation is making many people feel and what we can do about it. I've started work on a book called How to Be Happy at the End of the World, and in this episode that's exactly what I got to chat to Veril Rodriguez about. Um, a young climate activist who's been all over the news and social media in recent years as a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. Veryl and I dig deep into our own experiences of eco-anxiety and how this, this fear drew us into activism and how the shape of activism is currently changing considerably as things evolve both in the movement and in policing and legislation. So there's a fair bit of inside activism kind of chat. Um, it's personal, um, it's emotional and it's thought-provoking. Um, we cover anxiety, youth activism, storytelling and the future of the environmental movement. Um, the chat asks us to look deep inside ourselves and to develop the courage we need to imagine a different future and to believe that it's still possible. If you're struggling with anxiety at the moment, please reach out to your GP, get a referral to some help look after yourself and talk about it with others. Um, I'll also post a link to Force of Nature in the notes so you can learn about their work and check out all the resources they put together on eco-anxiety and, and how to deal with it. For now, welcome and let's go listen to Veryl and I have a chat about eco-anxiety, youth activism and the future of the environmental movement. Let's start at the beginning then. Let's start about climate change, your experiences of climate and ecological crises um and how you think and feel about it yeah i really want to dig into like the emotion of it and like you as an individual and your experiences of it and how you make sense of the world the stories that you use to make sense of it all yeah so i'll start all the way from the start i think um i had been aware or had heard of the term climate change when i was probably in school um but i didn't really think of it as like a pressing issue it was not until I actually did my placement at um, a diesel engine manufacturing company um, during my course as a mechanical engineer. Um, I sort of saw a lot of a lot of waste and a lot of emissions, and I started to think about like how this is going to harm the planet. And so that kind of led me to do a module in my third year of mechanical engineering called sustainability. And that's when we kind of researched a lot of climate change. And I remember like thinking. Um, and asking myself, like, this is such an, a serious issue. Um, why isn't anyone doing anything about it? So that kind of led me to do some more research on on uh, on climate change. I, uh, I watched a few documentaries and things like that. Um, and I remember telling myself, okay, let me try and do something about it. Um, so I went on to do my master's in renewable energy. And when I did my master's in renewable energy, I realized actually we already have the technology to to transition away from fossil fuels. It's just that we do not have the political will. And I remember, remember all of my lecturers saying, the technology is already here, we can fully rely, uh, rely on renewable energy, but our politicians don't want to invest any money into it. Um, and so I finished that course, and I've always sort of been, in, uh, been interested in sustainability and the environment since then. So I started sort of campaigning with Greenpeace uh, regarding plastics and 
the climate crisis just got worse and worse during that time. And I heard about Extinction Rebellion. Um, and um, I remember I was in Portugal in, uh, in April 2019. And I saw, I saw Extinction Rebellion in the news. And I was like, wow, this is like for the first time, one group that's actually like taking it seriously, like actually treating it like an emergency. And I was like, at that point, I was like, I definitely need to, when I get back to UK, I, I need to, I need to join them. So ever since then, I've kind of like always um, been involved in some way or the other with activism, especially after the uh, Amazon fires um, that happened in 2019. I think that was like a wake up call for me because I was like, this is really, really depressing. And it, uh, it made my eco anxiety go through the roof. I couldn't get sleep for days. Um, I was I was very miserable. Um, and that kind of like catapulted me to actually go for the uh, October Rebellion um, uh, and a few other protests at the time. And I remember going for protests actually made me feel good. And just being around people who had the same, who, who were like-minded and had the same sort of thinking as me, who understood me and made me feel good. Um, and then later on in 2019, I remember that there were the Australian bushfires and like, you know, they were very uh, apocalyptic um, at the time, like, you know, orange skies and everything. And I was like, wow, this is serious. Is this something that's going to happen every year? I mean, the Amazon is, is pretty much on fire every year. Um, and it's kind of like going to reach a point where it's giving off more carbon dioxide than, than it's taking in. I don't know if it's already reached that point. Um, but it's really real. And I think my eco anxiety sort of like kept on getting worse and worse. Uh, and I was doing uh, my graduate job at the time as a sustainability consultant. And I felt like that job wasn't actually bringing about the change that we needed. So I ended up quitting that job in April uh, 2020 to do full time activism. And I remember um, activism was the thing that was actually helping me cope with my anxiety. Making made, made me feel good about myself. And I also learned quite a lot of skills along the way and met loads of people. So that's been that's been great. I think, and I think since then it's always been like up and down, up and down. Like whether I feel that we can actually do something about the climate crisis, and it, I've always had the feeling of hopelessness as well, always set in from time to time. And I've just got to like sort of keep trying to balance that, keep trying to like push that up. Um, uh, push myself up and like keep communicate, communicating my feelings with people to actually feel good about it. Um, so, you know, since, since then I've just been involved in, in all sorts of activism, mainly using my skills, um, within media and just trying to fill in the gaps wherever possible. Um, and, uh, there's, yeah, so there's that side of things, um, where I kind of like studied climate change, but then there was the other side of things where, um, I also grew up in Dubai and um, having sort of grown up in a fossil fuel rich nation and being exposed to hot weather, weather I always felt like the, the temperature was increasing every year. That was quite evident. Um, you know, in, in winter, we used to wear sweaters. And now if you go there in winter, we don't really wear sweaters. Um, and my family are from Goa. So we used to go, we used to visit Goa at least once a year in the summer uh, to visit um, my grandparents over there, um, and I remember Goa used to be like a nice in the in the winter time. It used to be look, like really cool, like you know twenty twenty five degrees. Um, but if you go there now in winter, there is no winter. It's like thirty five degrees. Um, the last time I went in winter, um, so it was really really hot. 
And everywhere, every time, every year I went back, I, w- I also noticed that the beaches were becoming shorter and shorter. The sand was disappearing. One was because of illegal sand mining, and then two was because of sea level rise, which at the time I didn't realize. But actually, if you think about it now, it all makes sense. It all, it all makes sense why the temperature is increasing. Because a 1.5, I mean, a, a, a small increase in average temperature actually increases the um, increases the land temperature by a lot more, uh, which most people don't actually realize how it's affecting land temperatures. Um, so that was the other side of things which actually confirmed whatever I was learning about climate change. Um, and, and the thing that scares me is, you know, what's actually going to happen to all of these people, all of the communities that are in the global south, um, especially in like, well, yeah, especially in Dubai and, and, and India. And we've just seen in the last, in the last few, in the last few weeks, the, the heat wave spreading across, across India. So, and I've been sort of like trying to communicate that with my, with my family over there and like say to them, look, well, if it's, if it's going to be, if it's this bad right now, how bad is it going to be? 10 years from now, eight years from now, 2030, you know, like it's going to be unlivable. Um, uh, and yeah, that's kind of like where I am at the minute, just kind of like trying to make sense of, of things and trying to keep hope <laughs> in, in everything. Mm. Can you talk me through your, your eco-anxiety a bit more and like how it felt at the beginning and how it might feel now? Um, because I know that a lot of things have changed over the last couple of years and that you've probably no doubt been growing and changing yourself and having lots of different experiences. Activism has changed as well. It's all a bit of a roller coaster. So like, yeah, what's it been like for you in terms of that eco anxiety? Okay. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it's, it's a weird feeling. Um, it's, it's like, yeah, I hadn't sort of experienced anything like that before, uh, like before, like before being aware of the climate crisis, um, and I remember watching all the trees and forests on fire. For example, when the Amazon was on fire, I felt really, really hopeless. I felt like this was beyond what um, what me as an individual could do. Um, you know, I felt like individual actions, no matter what individual actions I took, it didn't really matter. So I needed to think about something that was bigger, that brought about more systemic change um, to our society and sort of get more people to, to actually realize what's going on. I felt really hopeless. I couldn't get sleep for days or it was very disturbed sleep. Um, my productivity levels came down. Um, my stress levels were high. Um, yeah, at the time I was like, why is this happening? And I was quite new to the term eco-anxiety as well at the time. Um, yeah, and it was like, it was just a weird, really sad feeling. Um, yeah, that, that meant that I couldn't actually do anything. But then as soon as kind of like, I don't know, time, time passed by and like with time, it, it, it sort of like came down a bit. And that's when I was like, okay, I need to get involved in, in doing something about it. And that made me feel good. Um, and every time I did, every time I took action, I took, I went for protests, met people, or it felt like as if I was bringing about systemic change, um, that made me sort of feel good about myself, helped me cope with that stress. It's almost like, yeah, I could tell myself, okay, look, I'm doing everything I could, you know, 
10 years from now, 50, uh, 20 years from now, at least I can, I can look back and see that I did everything I could. I quit my job. You know, I did, I did activism voluntarily. Most people probably wouldn't have even thought about doing that. Um, and if I have kids, or if I don't have kids, I can always tell them, look, like I did everything I could uh, in my power at the time. And, you know, the rest of the humans still still chose this path, but most of them are just not aware of it. So um, I think, yeah, just kind of having done everything I have done in the past kind of makes me feel good and helps me to reason that like you know it, it's okay it's okay feeling sad it's okay feeling the way i'm feeling there's nothing beyond what i can do and it's you know i can't solve the earth by myself but at the same time i'm always like trying to push myself to to like more further limits that's been good for me as well because I, I never knew how like productive I could be. <laughs> I've never been so productive um, uh, like in my life apart from like when I've been doing uh, environmental activism. And you know I think I, I, I think I come from um, I used to be an introvert as well, but I think like after doing activism, that's kind of like pushed the boundaries and I'm, I don't know I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm fairly in the middle now and it's pushed me to a point where I'm like doing pub a lot of public speaking. I'm sort of leading a few teams. I'm like, you know, chatting to loads of people, random people in the in the in, in the streets. I'm doing spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion. Um, you know, speaking on speaking on uh, on TV stations and doing interviews and things like that. So it's been it's been a huge huge learning curve for me, and that's been very very beneficial. Um, I feel to myself, um, especially for whatever I do in the future as well. Um, but yeah, I think. It's always that sort of I I still need to keep my keep pushing in order to, to feel good about myself because otherwise if I don't do if I don't do if I don't do if I don't take action uh, the climate anxiety sets in again and I've and I've seen that as well because I've got back into work and um, I've got back into work last year and um, when I did when I felt like as if I wasn't actually getting I wasn't actually doing much in act in the activism scene whilst having a full time job that that sent my eco anxiety up again which basically meant that i'm that my productivity came down especially mm -hmm. during, during cop 26 and that affected my my outcome at work uh, and there was a bit of a it was a bit of a downward spiral because if my productivity productivity comes down then that makes me feel really bad about myself that i'm not sort of doing what i'm what i'm being paid to do um, and that again increases my stress level. So I ended up actually quitting, quitting another job that I had, which was again very quite sort of green green PR um, a job that I worked for as well. So I then decided again this year to get back into full time activism, and I'm sort of considering what my next steps are and how to balance activism with with work and sort of be more sustainable in terms of in terms of finance. So I'm currently exploring other like working for a four day company, four day a week company or a three day part time job and do activism for two days a week or three days a week. Um, trying to find that balance, basically. But I've also been exploring sort of other projects and other like freelance opportunities or um, maybe starting up something myself as well. So I can be in charge of my own time and, you know, do activism whenever I want to. 
rather than having to take permission from someone else whether I can do activism. Yeah. I know exactly where you're coming from. <laughs> um, just to go back a little bit, you mentioned, because it, it resonated with me, you mentioned the October Rebellion. And I had the same feeling that you were just ex describing, like feeling in community, feeling empowered, feeling like I remember waking up in a tent outside the home office. And I didn't realize that is outside the home office because we put the tents up in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. So like coming out of the tent in the morning and there's this big lorry that we'd nicknamed Laura that was like parked across um, the road. Mm -hmm. blocking it at the home office and then all these stalls and tents and there was music playing there were talks going on i came out of the tent and someone walked by with a big tray of flapjacks and like do you want something to eat there was coffee going there was food like we were all looking after each other mm. and it just felt so powerful and 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 just loving and it felt fantastic mm. um and I've been thinking about that a lot recently, and I've been talking to people about it because as the police started to learn how to respond to our tactics and the whole Section 14, and yeah, I found that each action I've been on, each rebellion that I've been to since then, it's been going down in terms of my feeling of empowerment and community mm. to the extent that one of the actions that I took part in um, at the Lord Mayor's Parade um, back in November, I think it was. It was the opposite. It felt completely disempowering. It felt um, like not only was I banging my head against a brick wall, I was banging my head against a coastal shelf. It just felt so overwhelming, and we felt so small and like a a fly on a on a buffalo <laughs> like mm. just it's really disempowering which has got me thinking about my own levels of eco-anxiety that then arose from that um mm. and the polarization that's going on in the movement as extinction rebellion has grown and more people have joined which is great but then there's also been this schism um and we've got to this point now where everyone's running around trying to work out what the best strategy is going to be. We've had Insulate Britain, Just Stop Oil, um, Gail Bradbrook is now talking about, um, she's hosting these sessions next week on strategy. Extinction Rebellion itself um, is trying to find its feet when it comes to strategy. Um, and I... I feel like there's we're losing some momentum and losing some power um, as as people are trying to to work out what to do next and and how to get any traction. Um, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like, do you feel that? Um, and then also, um, I feel this need to talk about vision and what we're for and to be reminded of that. Um, rather than just running around trying to work out what the best tactics are uh, or who's got the best plan to, to try and coerce some sort of government figure or members of the public to think or do something that other people want them to think or do. And whether or not that's 
whether or not that's even a good thing to to aim for in the first place. Mm. Um, so somewhere in there, there's a question for you. Mm. <laughs> I think it's something about, yeah, the, the this notion of community and of empowerment, um, togetherness, and how that seemed to just nourish me and my eco-anxiety. And that as that depletes, or I felt it to deplete, um, like I still have my XR community and they're wonderful and I love being a part of it. But in terms of our, our sense of, of, of own empowerment, um, I, I don't feel that we are as empowered as we previously have been. Yeah. And I don't feel that we are all moving as one towards some shared vision and that we all know what we're fighting for, why we're fighting for it and how to do it. It feels like everything's up in the air at the moment and people are looking around trying to work out what's going to happen next. Hmm. That's my, that's my experience. What's your experience of that? If at all? Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I'm glad you bought, uh, you bought up that, uh, that feeling of community, um, uh, at that, at that rebellion in, in October, I think, yeah, definitely had that same feeling. I've never experienced anything like that before. Um, it was quite spiritual to some extent or like spiritual as in like I could feel really good energy, um, energy that I've not sort of like felt in the past before. It's like rebellions, I feel attract people like-minded people with good energy with a lot of love for the planet and when you put these people into one place i feel like it radiates out this amazing really um compassionate um um energy that's quite sort of um it's <sighs> words i can't yeah i can't get the word i'm looking for but it's 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 nice it's it's really good it's nice energy um and i remember I remember coming for that October rebellion uh, by myself because um, I didn't really, I was quite new to the movement and I was, I was, that kind of didn't stop me. I was like, I'm just going to go, came with my tent, uh, reached late at night and I think it was like the second, second or third day that I came and uh, pitched it. I, I just met some, met some random people in the park and they were, they were really nice and pitched my tent and, you know, we all got on quite well and went to the pub and everything. It was, yeah, it was great. Um, and then the next day, uh, the police started to raid everyone's tents and started to drag people's tents. And my t my tent was being dragged as well. <laughs> and um, someone actually saved my tent, saying that they were it was it was um, it was it was their tent. And I was like very grateful for him. <laughs> um, I still have that tent, luckily. Um, <laughs> but it was even though even though there was all this police brutality that was happening and. Any, and, you know, like the police sort of like clamping down on protests and, uh, during that second rebellion, there was still so much love in the air and that, like there was still so much momentum. Um, and there was, you know, there were so many people at Trafalgar Square. I'd never played in the samba band before and I just got sort of involved with that and um, just music and yeah, music and just seeing everyone dancing. Uh, that was just like absolutely amazing. You know, like when people think about protest, they always think like like placards and you know like shouting and screaming and stuff. But this is very different. It was it was it was a different type of protest. It was like you know, and there's always there's always like music and dancing at at XR protests, which I absolutely love. 
but yeah, completely uh, get what you were saying. I think like you know that community feel, that feeling that everyone's kind of looking after each other. Um, I think we don't really have that in in our in, in our societies today, and that itself was quite revolutionary about Extinction Rebellion. It was that regenerative culture, um, and it was kind of like an example of what our what our world could be like. It was kind of like living in a utopia. Um, but obviously, like, and, you know, at the end of rebellions or when you leave the rebellion, you have this really weird feeling. Um, it's a bit of a sad feeling, like as if you when, when you leave a festival, um, <laughs> you know, that that sets in. And I always wondered, like, why? Why do I feel so down? It's like you, you, you feel down for like a week after rebellions. I mean, one, because of like, the energy that you're putting into the rebellion but also i think you just like really miss the community and the energy of people and just being around that sort of like like minded people and that community of people just looking after you um and i think i think that's kind of like yeah i i definitely agree i think that's kind of gone down because you know it's it's because um because having sort of like not being able to camp for example at rebellions that sort of brought the community sort of slightly down um, I mean, still get it to some extent, the, the great energy, but, um, yes, I, I do, I do agree that it has sort of like, it has been going down in terms of like, what was the second part of the question? Like, it feels like as if, um, uh, that, that everything's now wide open and everybody seems to be wanting to know what's going to happen next. There's mm. lots of talk of strategy. There's lots of talks of tactics. Um, if we look at sort of the the stories that have been playing out since Extinction Rebellion formed, um, the whole kind of split with Roger Hallam mm. um, and him leaving the, the Heathrow drone action, um, the, the birth of Insulate Britain, and just stop oil and this kind of polarization within the environmental movement. A lot of people feeling that we have to take, you know, significant action. Mm. It's not enough for us all just to meet up and have a party. Yeah. Um, yeah. Versus the, there was a great discussion on YouTube between Rupert Reed and, and Roger Hallam around the moderate flank or the more radical flank. Mm. Um, and this notion of, yeah, are we trying to, what are we trying to achieve and how are we going to achieve it? Um, and is it going to be a mass movement? Is it something that we need everybody on board with, which is something that I think Rupert would describe to and trying to be more moderate and inclusive and holding space for everybody mm. uh, versus Roger's more radical flank, which would be like, we don't need everybody. We just need um, some incredibly committed mm -hmm. people to to be the change and to take big, bold, drastic actions. Mm -hmm. um, and then I suppose another thing to talk about around that is actually outside of this little bubble that we're in of Extinction Rebellion and, and environmental activism, the actual lived reality of the public and public life in the UK at the moment, um, who probably couldn't give a crap about the internal machinations of, of the movement and who's done what, who's done this, what's changed. All they ever see is just being disrupted um, and how they fit into it all, how we all, because we are them, they are us, how, does it, how do we do this together as a society and as a culture? Um, and we're, 
we're at a, a real turning point, I feel, at the moment, um, between greater and greater polarization um, and a real opportunity at the moment to sort of take a breath, have a look at what's going on and work out where do we go from here? What do we do next? Mm. Do you feel that as well? Yes, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I, actually, I think activism has come a long way since like the first, since like 2019. I think, you know, that first protest that Extinction Rebellion did in, in April 2019 has, was by far the most effective one. And I feel like every other one since then has been affected to some extent, but it's been just coming down and down. Um, you know, the first protest got the government, in my in my eyes, uh, got the government to declare a climate emergency, and then that led to them sort of setting the net zero uh, net zero target in, in law as well, which is great, great outcome. But yeah, ever since then, the police have been cracking down harder on us. Um, I feel like some of the actions that we are doing um, have been pushing some people away from the movement. There's been a lot of drama within the movement. And I, I guess like, you know, in, in every movement, there is always some, some, um, some, some extent of cancel culture. And I felt that I felt this um, in some of the other campaigns that I've been part of, you know, people just sort of like people within the campaign sort of being against each other. And that's one of the things that stops us from doing more, I feel. Um, and this is why I feel like in order to solve, in order to like, uh, in order to, yeah, in order to solve the climate crisis or sort of do something effective, everyone sort of needs to have this one vision and everyone needs to be on on each other's same uh, on on, a, on the same side but we still have we still we still face that um that challenge of you know trying to appeal to everyone and and uh, to be honest i i don't think we can appeal to everyone because everyone's got different views about everything um so there the, the, there were loads of activists for example who were against insulate britain what they were doing even though you know, like it was, it was an interesting ask. It was like an easy ask, uh, easy demand by the group. Um, but their tactics weren't necessarily agreeable by loads of climate activists, and that kind of alienated a lot of climate climate activists as well. Um, having said that, like even I, my view on it is that even if it alienates people at the start, it still puts the agenda, for example, of Insulate Britain at the top of everyone's minds and people are still talking about insulating, insulating homes, which is great. So, like, you know, I think even though at the time everyone hates them, uh, history always looks back on uh, protesters a lot, di a lot different, a, a lot differently. So, yeah, like what what direction are we headed? Um, I think we have got to think differently and use different tactics and be more creative be more inclusive but yeah there i guess there is not like there's no one answer i think i completely like get what roger's doing because he you know for him the climate crisis like is real he sees it in the numbers he sees that like it's it's coming it's like eight years away or like you know i mean things like the really bad things are like eight years away and it's gonna get even worse so for him it's like let's mobilize and let's get people um, in the streets, regardless of like you know what people, what the rest of the public thinks, but then I feel like at the same time we do need other more moderate flank um, organisations which are more appealing to the rest of the public, 
and the ones and and then we've got also the rest the, the public who basically are aware of the climate crisis but not willing to take action and those are the people kind of like um maybe who are already working and do not have the men mental capacity to think or take action and this is where i feel like business businesses can step in and this is something that i've been kind of focusing or thinking about a lot lately how can businesses also put pressure on governments uh, a term that i came across uh, re more recently was um, corporate political advocacy so cpa it stands for um how can because because if if the government now is starting to not listen to protesters that much they're more likely to listen to businesses putting pressure on them but it depends on like what businesses i guess but i wonder if businesses could collectively come together and there's, there's there's a few organizations that are that are trying to do this as well but if they collectively come together and start telling the government stop investing into fossil fuels um then i feel like it's going to be more effective and that's and, and that's not the only way to bring about change um but i think i think that's one of the things that that can be done more of um and i've been trying to speak to more b corps uh and other other like people from different sort of companies who are more likely who are more aware of the climate crisis and think it's think it's think that something needs to be done um and trying to sort of like tell them what ask them what can we do in fact i'm actually giving a presentation um on the 10th of may about like the title is governments are failing to act on the climate crisis what can businesses do um and i think this i i think that will effectively help people within bigger businesses to feel more to envision a a future which they which we can actually live in which we can actually take action um because a lot of people just don't or might not have the drive to do something themselves until they're told to do stuff and if they are working for a company then i feel like if it comes from either bottom up or top down saying look we are doing this we are putting pressure on the government or we are asking people to have like meat free days for example then i feel like peep that sort of starts the rest of the population to get on a journey towards more more towards assist, like more towards sustainability so i think we do need like bottom up approach and a, and a, and a and a top down approach within within businesses to sort of get them on that journey um but one of the things that i um came across just last week um was rather than getting people or rather than like changing our messaging from saying we need to end fossil fuels now to something more inclusive like um a fossil fuel future is possible or something more sort of like transitionary like we can transition to renewable energy so helping people um so ra rather than being against the fossil fuel industry or rather than being against what the people what most people are, already believe in help them to envision themselves with this future that we want help them to sort of like mm -hmm. see part of how they could they could see that they could play a role for example rather than being completely against it because i think what we're doing by saying no new fossil fuels not that it's bad but i think um 
what we're doing is basically just just making them shut off from us and just making them see themselves as never being part of us and making them see you know us as radicals and sort of people who are just asking for something that is never going to happen so i think i think having a messaging sort of um telling more stories as well is it would be quite powerful um and it was it was a talk when i was um uh, i really like this talk by alan um alan moore or james moore i can't remember but he was yeah i was in cornwall last week basically uh for boardroom 2030 it was this conference at uh, the eden project um alan moore i think yeah i actually wanted to get his presentation because he had a lot to say in terms of um how we can design sort of like more climate action into every into everything that we're doing especially like within businesses and he was speaking about you know it was about how we can make people envision the future that we need to see um you know what what culture are we creating within our communities what culture are we creating within uh within our workspaces is it a good culture is it a regenerative culture um he also did say like yeah sort of telling more stories looking into nature and seeing what solutions lie within nature um he spoke a bit about a four day week and things like that and also about like how um how we how we should transition more into a circular economy as well mm-hmm. um but yeah his his talk was really really inspiring and he also spoke about how we need to look into ourselves and you know connect with ourselves in order to sort of come up with solutions um so yeah he touched on a few special things which is which is really nice that sounds great yeah. like i'm 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 more and more i'm ascribing to a theory of change that says you can't have social change without personal change mm. it's the it's the macrocosm and the microcosm and the the two are not distinct mm. um and separate it's all interconnected um and then that inner work which is why i think eco anxiety is so important that is your soul screaming out going pay attention pay attention this is not good this mm-hmm. is not good you have to do something you must act so therefore it should be listened to mm-hmm. it should be followed through upon um mm-hmm. my own eco anxiety peaked around the christmas period when i really delved into the climate science to sort of like update myself and make sure that you know I've, I'm paying attention and paper a, a paper in particular that I read that really put the cat amongst the pigeons was um the future of the human climate niche have you read that yeah yeah <laughs> okay so that paper I'd heard about it in a in a, a youtube video that Roger had done mm-hmm. so I went and read it and I know one of the authors because I used to work at the University of Exeter yeah. um and did a podcast episode with him um professor tim lenton and i've got another one coming up with him as well um and reading that paper and understanding that there's this particularly um useful habitable zone around the planet across all recorded history and also unrecorded history within the climate records and and so on um of a mean annual temperature of around about 13 degrees and that that is most conducive to human settlements and agriculture and the births of of civilization mm. and that as we get into a 3 and 4 degree warmer world 
as as economists actually suggests that we can afford to go to a three degree world um that human climate niche shrinks and moves moves north okay. um to the extent that by 2070 hundreds of millions if not billions of people will either have to migrate or die mm. Yeah. Um, so we're talking mass migration, upheaval, conflict, etc., etc. Unless we can find a way to um, welcome people, mm -hmm. as many people as we can possibly welcome from all over the world, into higher latitudes um, around the planet. Mm. And it got to the point where, yeah, having read that, reading a bunch of other papers, it dawned on me that this century ahead of us has the potential the future hasn't happened yet but it has the potential to see the unraveling of western civilization and social collapse and trying to get to a position where i could stare that down without being completely overwhelmed and full of despair was incredibly difficult mm. and what ended up happening was i became completely overwhelmed and full of despair um, to the extent that I was washing the dishes and thinking these things through. My wife came in, she's like, are you okay? I'm like, no. And was talking about these projections and what I've been reading. And we've got two young daughters. And she was saying to me, yeah, but look, all you've got to do is just, just look after the kids, just protect the kids. And I said, I, that's just it. I can't. I can't protect them from this and just broke down in tears. And then later that week, I was in my daughter's bedroom, folding up her, her laundry, putting it away in her drawers and she's playing behind me. And I'm just thinking about the world that she's going to inherit and food shortages and how I need to teach them how to grow their own food. Um, but then also feeling, um, unsure as to our ability to grow that food due to you know our own climate changes that we're going to experience here um, around amounts of rainfall and, and wind in particular like i live an exposed site in cornwall um, and just thinking all these things through and luckily i had some really good people to talk to to kind of help me process the emotion and i can honestly say that when I really, really stared that grief down, when I stared that truth down and held it and acknowledged it and I didn't run from the pain, I, I sat with it, I moved through it. And it was almost as if once I accepted it, once I saw it for what it was and I recognised the the emotional needs within me, that were being triggered by it or that weren't being met. And then I could try and work out ways to, to talk to those emotional needs inside me that I was able to then almost slingshot. That's the way I kind of think about it. Like my suffering pulled me so far backwards, but eventually it led to a release shooting me back the other way. Right. And it's just cat it's catalyzed me. Um, in terms of the work that I'm doing, the belief that I have in the work, and also the ability to find happiness against that backdrop, 
means that that happiness is now so robust and resilient that I feel stronger for it. And it makes me think about the Joseph Campbell quote, the treasure that you seek um, is in, oh no, wait a minute, it's the other way around. It's like the darkest cave that you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek. And that that then leads itself again back to this idea of you can't have social change without personal change. And for me, I feel that that, that process of dealing with that eco-anxiety and that grief was transformative mm. because what it forced me to do was to become bigger than my problem. It forced me to expand my consciousness and my conscious awareness in order to arrive at a state of being in the world where I'm okay. Mm that I'm okay no matter what, that I can still find a way to be happy and to feel free, even in those circumstances, to be able to stare down the truth of climate and ecological collapse and to still find within me some kind of source to still feel content, to still be okay. And that therefore that, that suffering has provided me the greatest catalyst and contrast for my own personal development mm. and that I'm now stronger than I've ever been. <laughs> Yet in order to get there, I had to crumble and be, you know, just the most overwhelmed mm. I've ever been. Um, yeah. And what I'm getting at is I, I, I think there's a certain amount of denial in all of us to accept the the level of this situation yeah i think we have climate change denial but then i think you know as in is it even happening but then i think there's this whole other spectrum of denial around people who do accept that it's happening and to what extent do we believe that it's happening just how much of a risk is it and when we talk about sustainability what are we choosing to sustain Personally speaking, when I look at it now, I see that in order to, there's a great David Orr quote, in order to create, um, in order to have true sustainability, first we need to create a world worth sustaining. So what is it that we're trying to sustain in the first place? And I come back to these ideas of, maybe there's an awful lot of this that's not worth sustaining. And maybe a lot of it does need to die off. Um, and that, Perhaps once we work through this, we're going to arrive at a state where we end up with something that's better than we've got now, but it's only because we've been through so much trauma to get there, um, which is sad, but that's kind of how people work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm potentially projecting my own experiences um, but that's okay. That's how I make sense of the world. I'm only human. Um, and I'm not saying that we're going to arrive at some sort of utopia. I'm merely thinking that I can't see how we're going to arrive at a situation that is most honest and clearest reflection of reality until we engage properly with the emotional dynamics at play. Um, and that we've spent God knows how long running around talking about facts and science as if that was going to change anything when really we are storytelling creatures mm -hmm. and we're also spiritual 
we're not just rational and scientific and that in that that clinging to this rationality i don't think it's going to help us solve the problems because i think in in many ways it's actually caused them that for for the longest time as much as i absolutely love science i also recognize that it's incomplete because it can't tell us anything about consciousness because it is it's only dealing with objectivity to deal with consciousness requires subjectivity because only you look through your eyes and experience the world the way that you do you are a single unique point of consciousness and each and every one of us is exactly that and at best we can aim for some sort of inter subjectivity where we come to understand these overlaps and shared experiences of being in the world but science can't tell us anything about what is fundamentally subjective and and consciousness and in that realm of consciousness and understanding and exploring it is where we learn about ourselves because that's what we are mm. so we're missing this huge piece of the puzzle of the human story of who and what we are and the territory that where that plays out is not the territory or the realm of science it's historically been the realm of religion and spirituality and we're missing that and i'm not saying that we all need to go and join some sort of dogmatic institutionalized religion but i think i am saying that we need to look more deeply inward in order to respond to this interconnecting set of crises we also need to look at how we make sense of the world the stories we tell and the role of science um because we're missing we're missing something um and i think that when we start to rub away at those layers within ourselves and we start to use things like eco anxiety as catalyst for better understanding ourselves it's almost like we start to remember or rediscover rather than be told something new because i think deep down we know and we feel all these things but we just don't have words for them or we don't have the stories within our culture to properly express them yeah um but but they are there mm-hmm. um but how how we square off that inner work and that inner world and we culturally grow and expand our consciousness to be able to see and learn from climate change mm-hmm. and how we marry that up with activism and taking action and the urgency of the situation we're in i don't have any answers mm-hmm. i'm just asking those questions i don't quite get how it all fits together yet um but i think that there is something brewing that is going to reinvigorate a more spiritual um response to to the crises that we face because ultimately the emotions that we have as human beings in response to this the this feeling of over, overwhelm and of fear and of anxiety at some point they are either going to overcome us or we are going to learn from them i also like to think that within science all the learning that's gone on over the last couple of decades around earth system science and climate science and so on 
again, what catalyst for understanding the world? What lessons we've been able to learn? Like we're now aware that human beings have the potential to impact planetary systems. Now, we've arrived at that conclusion by fucking things up, like walking around in the dark and stubbing our toe and going, oh, yeah, there's a thing there. But if we actually understood it and we were able to engage with it, then that unleashes like a whole new way of being in the world. Um, and it changes the way that we see ourselves and our relationship with the planet. So part of me really hopes that all this suffering, all this, um, these crises are catalyst mm. for learning. And that if we can learn from them, what we then end up with on the other side of this is a, is an awesome set of understandings about who we are, where we come from and how this all works. And I hold out this, this faith and this hope for some sort of ecological civilization, or at least some sort of ecological culture. Um, it's already been there for millennia in indigenous um, culture. All those earth-based spiritualities, as far as I'm concerned, nailed it. Yeah. Um, and it's in our moving away from, from that understanding of the world that we've become detached and, and severed our, our connection. Um, so for me, there are three things that need to change. No more fossil mm -hmm. fuels, no more economic growth and a reformulation of human identity to see ourselves as an integrated, interdependent, not separate part of the planet. Mm -hmm and of nature. Now, how do we arrive at those three things? I don't know. I, I'm less and less of a mind that you can demand your way to them. I'm not, I don't, when we ask and we make demands of people, we give away our power because we, we fall into victimhood and we say, well, everything would be fine if those people over there changed or if those people thought like I do, or these guys did this. And it takes away our agency. It means that we are at the mercy of those other people to respond and act in the ways that we want them to. So it's disempowering. So how do we get to those three things without demanding it of other people? That for me is the squaring of the circle and that if we can work out ways to achieve that, we might just be um, better placed to to actually get to live and experience the world that we want here and now, rather than it being something that may or may not happen in the distant future, dependent on these people. Like, it makes perfect sense to say, okay, well, those are the guys that are in control. They've got the steering wheel. Let's go tell them what to do. But less and less, I have less and less faith that that's the way to do it because essentially what we're asking when I say no more fossil fuels, no more um, economic growth and no more um, separation. Um, that basically means a complete revolution away from neoliberal capitalism. Yeah. And I don't think that you can lobby for an ideological shift from neoliberal capitalism to whatever comes yeah. next just by shouting at people and say, 
change it. So do you think that in order to, I mean, the only way to end capitalism is by the climate, the climate crisis getting worse and worse and society and we have societal collapse in different parts of the world. Do you think that it's kind of, you know, I mean, I don't think that that's the only way. It's definitely not the preferable way. I think it's inevitable. I think that unless something happens, some sort of uh, shift in consciousness at scale that happens individually within people changing their minds, changing the way they perceive the world, changing the stories they tell themselves about the world and their place in it, that's exactly what will end up happening. It will just keep going until it gnaws away at the, so at the social and ecological foundations mm. that support it, and it will collapse. And then what we'll be left with is uh, trying to build a new way out of the rubble of the mm. old. Um, fundamentally, just from a logical point of view, this civilization is finished. The question is, are we going to be able to transform it in full and at speed? Or are we going to have to do what the deep ecologists perhaps would talk about, which is we have to work on creating what comes next here and now that we have to try and find the little pockets of the future that are here in the present and grow them and grow them and grow them and understand that that might take a long time. That as much as we run around, and I have, um, saying we've got three to four years um, to change things, otherwise humanity is screwed, it, it might well be that this is going to take longer than three or four years and that we are going to see partial collapse in which case the challenge then becomes, well, how do we reduce the amount of collapse? How do we shrink it down to as little as possible? How do we save as many species as possible? How do we save as many people as possible? But that ultimately we have to let go of any idea that we're going to get some kind of silver bullet. We're going to get some sort of Hollywood ending to this, that someone's going to save us, that, that somehow it's all going to get wrapped up in a nice little bow because everyone's going to... Um, you know, these the powers that be are going to wake up and change. Um, like I think about the people that are behind the driver's steering wheel, so to speak, at the moment. For them, what they're doing, they think they're doing the right thing. They're telling themselves stories and they're perceiving the world in such a way that it makes sense for them to do what they're doing because they think they're doing the right thing. They, they're coming at it from decades of Cold War, communism versus capitalism, um, post-Second World War, economic growth, increasing living standards, increasing longevity, curing disease. Like this capitalist expansion project through the 20th century has conferred just the most incredible benefits on billions of people. And the people that are in control of it see that and only that. So when we come along and say everything that you've invested in, your whole story, the, the whole way that this is playing out is fundamentally flawed because of fossil fuels, economic growth and 
false sense of separateness. They're just going to tell us to fuck yeah. off. <laughs> and and um, to try and get those people to see those three things through a lens mm. of compassion and through a lens of actually we want to try and make things better by doing those things is really difficult. And they have to come to that conclusion mm. themselves. I don't think they're going to get there by being smashed on the head about it. At the same time, I don't think they're even going to have the conversation or have the space in which to explore those things unless we bang them over yeah. the head to get their attention. So how we balance the two things together, I'm not too sure. It's like one part of it's got to be massive disruption, civil resistance, civil mm. disobedience to capture attention, create space, have the conversation. But then it, the other part of it has got to be like this just absolute heartfelt compassion and understanding and yeah. empathy that we can't impose our order on other people. We have to let them arrive at it themselves. Yeah. yeah. Which is really, really hard. Um, but the, the, the other thing to say is that all those people, and this, this is it's going to sound kind of mean, they're all getting really old. Mm. They're not going to be around forever. And like the generations coming through are, are going to have less and less belief in those narratives. And I think the more we can start telling stories about how those generations that have come through have significantly fucked the world and handed over just this awful, awful inheritance, but that they did so with full conviction that what they were doing was right. Mm. Um, but that everything that they're handing over is all based on stories and interpretations of the world and that those things are not fixed. We do not have to accept their stories. We have to accept the reality of what they're giving us and what they've provided for us. And we have to be thankful for all the wonderful things that they've given us. But at the same time, we don't have to swallow the fucking bullshit story that they have also left to us about who we are and why we're here, that we're separate, that we are somehow distinct and separate from nature and not a part of it, that the planet doesn't have any limits, that we can do whatever the hell we want because this whole project is about, you know, human flourishing above all else, um, and that economic growth and expansion is absolutely paramount because without it, we will collapse. Um, and that the way that we've, the way that we power all of this is through fossil fuels. Mm. Uh, we don't have to swallow that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, that's mm. kind of where I'm at at the moment. And when I'm starting to think about the future of the environmental movement, all I have are questions. I don't have answers as yet, but I, I implore people to have the conversations about the bigger historical and political and economic stories that are playing out here, rather than just talking about what tactics we're mm. going to use next. Um, what what tool are we going to use to whack these people over the head to make them listen to us? You um, you spoke about you touched a bit about trauma, um, and that's really interesting. Uh, and also, like I found what you were saying about expanding consciousness quite interesting um, as well. But so I spoke to someone called Ben Benjamin Castillo yesterday uh, who had contacted me on LinkedIn. And he's um, 
I think it would be really interesting for you to speak to him because he's done a lot of research on trauma. And um, whatever he said yesterday to me resonated really well. He said that there's three types of trauma. Uh, there's intergenerational trauma. There's like trauma that's happened in your life. And, um, and then there was a third kind of trauma that I can't remember. But one of the things he said was we cannot address the climate crisis without dealing with the trauma uh, that have happened to us in, in past generations. And that is one of the reasons why um, humans have so much greed at the minute and why we are sort of, why we are holding on to that power. Because he mentioned that, like, for example, the tribes who were nice in the past were the tribes who basically got annihilated by other tribes. So being nice didn't necessarily equal, um, equal survival. And at the moment, we are still in survival mode. And this is why we're still sort of like clamping on to fossil fuels, because fossil fuels equal power. It means economic growth. It means economic sort of drive more money. More money means you're more likely to stay on top of another country, for example. Um, you also mentioned about um, trauma in the past, like, for example, wars that have happened in the past. And how that feeling, uh, you know, that 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 sort of image of like wars happening in the past, and even like the the Russia and Ukraine war, how that's fueling uh, more governments to like clamp onto to fossil fuels. Now, he mentioned that we need to start talking about trauma with everyday people when we have conversations. Start speaking about trauma with about how. Um, you know, how in the past that we sort of, we had all these issues, but in this new age, we don't really have a choice right now, because what we're going to experience coming forward is going to be way worse than what we've experienced in the past. I'm going to try and connect you with him. I think I think you should have a conversation with him. I think it would be quite uh, useful for, for your book. Oh, yeah. please do. I'd love yeah. that. That sounds awesome. I was thinking about something similar myself in, in my own family. Um, so I was looking at my relationship mm. with my parents and their relationship with their parents, and I could see how my upbringing indirectly had been impacted by the effects of the Second right. World War. Mm. So my grandfather fought in the Second World War, witnessed just absolute mm. horror, came back with PTSD, um, used to beat my grandmother and my father, was really detached. Um, and then basically my father grew up abused because his own father lacked the emotional capacity or empathy to engage with him on any kind of meaningful yeah. level. And then that meant that I've been raised by someone who has zero emotional experience or intelligence because no one taught them how to be in the world in a holistic emotionally sound kind of way. Um, and then that's infected the way that I've been raised. Um, and I could see that same principle then playing out for everybody, you know, everywhere, like the, the experiences of your parents, their experiences of their own being parented and this passing on generation after generation of um, how to live. 
and what the stories are that we use to make sense of the world. And in particular, in Western culture, our um, inability, not everybody, but for a lot of people, um, to properly grasp and understand emotional life, not just rational life, but emotional life. And it's a skill and it's something, it's an art. You have to, you have to learn how to engage with those things. Otherwise you just repress them. Uh, you run away from them and you don't know how to deal with them. And it leads to existential angst. It leads to mental health issues. It leads to a disquiet, a disquietened mm -hmm. soul that's trying to reach out and be heard. Um, but you lack the language or the skills to listen and understand. Yeah. Um, and that that can be culturally created, reproduced and passed mm. on. Yeah. So I would yeah. love to talk to him because that sounds, yeah. that sounds perfect. Thank you. Yeah. yeah put us in touch. Mm. Okay. So you're 27. How old are you going to be in 2070? Um, 70, you're going to be in your seventies. Yeah. 75. Yeah. Okay. What would 75 year old Verrill say looking back on 2022 as to what we need to do mm, next? Yeah, good question. <laughs> um, I think, I think I would tell myself, to get the rest of the population. I think we've done our bit in terms of like creating that, that noise and getting the climate, uh, climate change agenda to the top of people's heads. What we need is now to empower the rest of the population to take, to take collective action. And we need, and we need, we need to do that by sort of, you know, with everyone contributing whatever they can. And that can, can that can be through like activism or activist campaign groups that can be through business activism that can be through like you know it can come from the government it can it, it needs to come from everywhere everyone needs to sort of just unite and do stuff with whatever with whatever capacity they have even if it's a small thing you know it it all it all makes a difference so i think and again, touching on the point that I think we need, and you spoke about this as well, we need people to envision a future that they can live in. I think rather than just saying, look, uh, like life on earth is going to die unless we do something, start telling, start telling more stories and start making people believe that they are, they can be part of a better future. That's what, that's what I would mm. tell myself. Yeah. Okay, and I'm going to ask another massive question. What has climate change taught you about being alive? I think we've got to look after ourselves and the environment that we live in um, and also the people that we live in. I think, and also just realizing that whatever we do always has an impact on everything else around us, on on our environment and all and and the people as well, and that our environment is very fragile. Um, 
with whatever we do. So also, I do believe that like being on Earth is is part of the the wider journey that we're on um, as souls. So I to some extent I feel like what yeah being on Earth is 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 a bit of a test. <laughs> um, to see how we how we kind of perform and and how much and how much good we do so i feel like i feel like no matter what and i feel like you know even though that the world or i feel like the earth we are destroying the earth i think you know as long as we sort of carry on to do good and carry on to do what's necessary um you know just just get through life um without putting too much pressure on yourself to a point where you know you're just like absolutely miserable i think that was one of my that was one of my sort of uh realizations that i sort of like got in in february um when i was like seeking the same questions as you like you know what do we do um and you know like a lot of people basically or having the realization that actually maybe there isn't much or there isn't like we can't really stop what's coming for us um and it's like, yeah, it's much bigger and it's much more complex than we actually actually think. So, um, yeah, but I'm also always constantly Thank learning you. of, you know, what, what, yeah, what, you know, what is needed of us, and um, yeah, always having new new theories, <laughs> new answers to things. So, yeah, I think there's something in there about this. Isn't just about doing mm. it's about being um and that again talks back to that you can't have social change without personal change that we can't control what happens to us but we can control mm. how we respond and we always get to choose how we perceive reality we always get to choose how we view our consciousness because we are yeah. our consciousness so in choosing our reality we are defining mm. ourselves and that if we can do that in such a way where we've got the greatest alignment between yeah that that presence that feeling of soul in that egoless way and the world around us and we can remove as many of those blocks and resistance and limiting beliefs mm. and trauma and sit more often in that space of being in the world where you feel that you genuinely do choose how to respond to everything that's in front of you in such a way that you're still able to arrive at a place of happiness no matter what that that is incredibly empowering okay so that's the end of the episode as always thank you for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe as this really helps other people find us and we love hearing what you have to say. Um, remember, as scary as many of these topics are, the future hasn't happened yet and we still do get to choose the best paths to take. So stay tuned, keep sharing, keep believing. Positive tipping points are coming. We just need to keep on finding new paths to reach them. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode.